In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. This is the eighth Sunday after Pentecost, and we're continuing in Luke's Gospel, entering here into chapter 12, where we see a man come and ask Jesus uh, to tell his brother to share his inheritance. He says, uh, give me what's coming to me, right? Which is a dangerous thing to pray. And, uh, and so uh, the Lord admonishes uh, this man in several ways. And one way is that he names uh, the illness that is ailing him. He says, uh, you're suffering from covetousness, from wanting more things. And of course, as soon as we hear uh, covetousness, we're going to be thinking of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to be thinking about the, the parallel structure of the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are two halves. There's the first five and the second five. The first five start with uh, loving the Lord your God, right? Putting him first. The last five end with covetousness, which is idolatry. And so everything that comes out of idolatry when we want a person's life or we want their truth or we want their uh, material things or we want their husband or wife, it all comes from uh, an idolatry uh, where we're seeking those things for ourselves. All of uh, the Hebrew scripture is in one way or the other dealing with uh, this uh, essential kind of parallelism, uh, the love of God and the focus upon the Lord, and then that pull, that tug towards idolatry and worshiping things or people or uh, situations other than the Lord. And uh, the, the books of the Bible come at this, uh, this suffering, this illness that we have in many different ways. The Bible is a collection of books, right? It's not one book. The, the Bible is a collection of books. There are many books uh, that have uh, very different kinds of uh, ways of talking about uh, the Lord and our relationship to him. We have gospels, we have letters, we have uh, the books of prophets, we have history books, we have books of wisdom. And uh, what we go to this morning is one of the books of wisdom. Books of wisdom are, are very different than other books of the Bible. We're not going to read it as kind of a, a chronological history, and we're not going to read um, each one the same way. Indeed, the three books of wisdom that are written by Solomon are in many ways very different from one another. Uh, Solomon, if you'll remember, is kind of at the pinnacle of uh, the history of the nation of Israel. If we were to talk about a golden age of the nation of Israel, Solomon uh, may very well be the person that we look to. He kind of stands at the middle point of history of the nation of Israel. If you think about Abraham and the covenant that's made, uh, the promise that's made to Abraham that uh, the nation of Israel will come out of him, uh, this happens at about 2000 BC. Uh, at the end of this is the coming of Christ at, at 0 or 1 AD. And so then in the middle of those 2,000 years, at about 1,000 B.C., is Solomon and the three great kings of the United Kingdom. So he stands, uh, you know, 1,000 years after Abraham and 1,000 years before Christ. If you remember, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the sons of Jacob go into Egypt and they become slaves. And after uh, several hundred years, they are led out by Moses. And about 1,500 B.C., they come into the Promised Land. And they have several years, uh, several hundred years where they're led by judges. And finally, the people cry out for a king. And it's at about 1000 BC that Saul is raised up and then torn down. And then uh, David is raised up. And David establishes 
uh, Jerusalem as the center of the nation of Israel. It had not been Jerusalem until the time of David. He unites the forces there. He brings the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, this moving tent where they would worship the Lord, to Jerusalem onto a threshing floor. And David's desire is to build not this tabernacle, not this tent, but to build a temple of stone on the city of Jerusalem. And he's not able to. It's his son Solomon that's able to do that. And Solomon is able to gather not only the wealth that David has set aside, but he gathers wealth from all over, really, all the way down into Ethiopia, um, into to Persia, and up into what we think of as Turkey and Scythia for these amazing trees, uh, for the trees of Lebanon. All of these material goods are brought in this incredible uh, show of wealth and the genius of engineering. Indeed, they have this um, really kind of monumental ability to engineer the city of Jerusalem and to build the tabernacle. And uh, so there's this kind of pinnacle of wealth and power in the person of Solomon. And in this time, he writes three books that the, the church teaches, the tradition teaches, are the three ages of man. He writes uh, first the Song of Songs, which is the, the book of a young man. It's a love poem. It's a love poem of a bride to a groom and of a groom to a bride. And there's lots of ways that we talk about that book, uh, but on its surface, at its very basis, it is uh, the love of a man of a woman and a woman for a man. It's the, the foundation of uh, this married life, a very important book for our understanding of marriage. In the middle of life, Solomon writes Proverbs, and Proverbs is the book of a man who's now established, who is uh, warning and teaching his own son. He's in the childbearing years, and he's talking to his own son, and he warns him against Dame Folly, right, the woman of folly. And he holds up the woman of wisdom, and he says, choose the woman of wisdom, don't choose the woman of folly, right? Don't listen to the voice that says, go and party and live it up, and take everything when you can. Listen to wisdom, which teaches uh, you know, self-control and the righteousness of God and the ways of living. And Proverbs is very important for our understanding of how to live daily life and how to use our material goods and how to raise our children and to organize our homes. An essential book for middle of life. At the end of life, then, we get this third book of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And it really is a, a reflecting book. It's a book where the preacher, the king, looks back on his life and he says, this is what I've accomplished, this is what I've done, um, and, and what uh, is the result of what I have? And it's a really wonderful book for us because sometimes we think, oh, if only I was a little richer, if only I was a little bit more powerful, if only I had a little bit more of, of, of fame or wealth or glory, I could do things. And Solomon is really wonderful for us because he's really at the pinnacle of all those things. His fame is uh, unmatched, right? His power unmatched, his wealth unmatched. And yet he says at the end of the day when he has all of this fame and all this power and all this glory, he says all is vanity. All is vanity. All is like the wind. And this is a very important book of, of um, theology and of even uh, uh, philosophy for us uh, because uh, we live in a, a world where uh, the structures of our society are being torn down, the institutions are being torn down, and uh, people are uh, thinking, oh, I can just figure it out for myself, and if I gain things, if I gain some kind of power or fame, or I gain some things for myself, then I will know who I am, and I will have uh, meaning and purpose and understanding and the ability to, to correct myself. 
This is, is what is at the heart of the yearning desire of all people. And it's what is at the heart of what Solomon says that he does not get from all that power and all that wealth. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Because at the end of the day, it's not what we acquire, it's not what we can perceive in the natural world, it's not the wisdom that we can gain um, from our own life experience, uh, the, the ability to straighten our lives, to do what's right, and to know who we are, comes from God. It comes from uh, our knowledge and the revelation of God. And the end of Ecclesiastes, the end of this book of wisdom, the last two chapters emphasize this. He says, now that I'm at the end and now that I've acquired all these things and I found nothing but vanity, everything is but grass that is destroyed. It's the Lord who reveals. It's the Lord who clarifies. It's the Lord who gives purpose and meaning. He's the one um, that allows me and teaches me how to uh, organize my life and how to give uh, meaning to my life. It's so important for us to have an understanding that it's, it's to the Lord that we need to turn. It's to, to him that we need to turn in prayer and in the reading of scripture and the breaking of bread so that we know who we are and we're able to organize our lives according to his will. Indeed, uh, when this man comes to Jesus, he is asking Jesus uh, to do what he wants him to do. And, and so this is a man who is caught still in that foolishness that, um, that Solomon describes. He's caught uh, in this web of these first ten chapters of Ecclesiastes uh, where he's thinking that if he's able to acquire this power or wealth, um, he will have meaning and he will be able to organize his life. Uh, but of course, um, he is a man who hasn't read the last two chapters. He's a man that doesn't understand um, the meaningfulness of of what the Lord provides. And Jesus asks him, who made me judge over your life? So if we do want to turn to the Lord, if we do want his understanding, if we do want him to give meaning to our lives, if we do want him to order our lives, then we are in effect making him our judge. We're saying, Lord, you decide. You be the one who tells me what to do. You be the one who tells me what's important. You be the one who tells me how to act. And this is in contrast to the foolish rich man. The foolish rich man in this parable that Jesus tells uh, to the man that asks for his inheritance is a kind of a, a caricature almost, a comic book version of what Solomon presents in Ecclesiastes. Again, he's a man who, who hasn't read the end of the book. He's a man that doesn't understand that wealth and power are not going to give him meaning and right understanding. And the man turns to himself for all of his decisions. You'll see that in the parable, the rich man says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain. I will say to my soul, soul? He's his own advocate. He's his own advisor. You might think of the English parable which says that a man who um, is his own uh, lawyer has a fool for a client, right? A man who acts as his own lawyer has a fool for a client. And Jesus is our lawyer. We say he is our advocate, right? He is the one who is instructing us. He is the one who's advising us. He's the one who's teaching us. 
So we have a choice. We can either turn to our own souls. We can say, oh, I've got some good experience. Um, I've been successful in this in the past. Uh, this is the way that I've done it before. Um, look at all that I've been able to acquire thus far. I must be doing pretty well. I can keep on like this. Is leading themselves into destruction in their own ignorance rather than turning to the Lord. And what Jesus says, being rich toward God. So if we spend time with the Lord, if we wait upon him in prayer, if we devote that time and that energy to waiting upon him and to seeking his purpose for our life and seeking his ways, then we will be laying up the richness in heaven. We'll be laying up our treasure with the Lord. We'll be giving him all of our desire. We'll be giving him all of our hunger. We'll be giving him all of our thirsting. And from him we will gain the understanding that we need, the wisdom that we need, the, the direction that we need, the purpose that we need, and the power through the Holy Spirit for our lives to be made straight according to his will. And St. Paul teaches us he teaches us that this temptation, this illness of idolatry, this temptation is something that we have to be constantly aware of. We don't get to walk out of here today, some of us saying, yeah, that's a problem for me, and other ones saying, no, that's not a big deal for me. That's not the option, right? We're all saying, I am guilty of idolatry and covetousness and turning to myself for advice, and I need the... Uh, instruction and the medicine of our Lord and Savior. He says, we have walked in sexual immorality and impurity and passion, evil desires. And he summarizes all these things as saying covetousness, right? It's wanting that pleasure for our body, wanting those material things, wanting those experiences. And we're gathering them all together and we're worshiping those things. And he says that we have to, um, that we have to, to, to stand firm and we have to um, beware of these things. And we have to put on the new self and be renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. So he says we have to put on a new self and be renewed after the image of the creator. So St. Paul is going back and he's saying, what is our purpose? What is our meaning? Why are we created? We were created in the image of God. We were made to be image bearers of Christ. And there are some that read the scriptures and say, oh, that image is broken. We can no longer reflect that image. And that's not at all what St. Paul is here saying, is he? He's saying that that image needs to be renewed. Well, what does that mean for an image to be renewed? We might think of a painting or a fresco or an icon on the wall of, say, a cathedral where centuries of smoke have tarnished it and made it black. You've all seen that, right? In some ancient building where there's been candles century after century and you can barely see the image. See, we're all made in the image of God. What does that mean? That we've all got the same nose as God? What does it mean that we're image bearers? It means that His Holy Spirit can enliven us and we can have the understanding and the heart and the mind of God. Unlike the, the animals who rely on instinct and who do the same thing the same way, the same day, we can change through the, the image of God being renewed in us and his knowledge and his wisdom and his desire and his mind can shine forth in us. 
But it has to be renewed because it's been soiled by what? By sin, by covetousness, by desire. That's the, the smoke that's covered the image. And you know that that's painstaking work, right, for these restorers to go in and to find these old paintings and to, to take the little swabs of cotton with the cleaning agent to very carefully remove the soot that's gathered so that the true image can be revealed, right? It's, it's painstaking work. It's, it's delicate work. It's about bringing about that image. So we're being renewed through the Holy Spirit. The Lord is washing away that sin. He's washing away that covetousness so that we can reflect the image of God. We can reflect His character. We can reflect His love, right? His joy, His wisdom. Because that's why we were made to reflect the image of God. And of course, all of this begins with compassionate hearts, kindness, and humility with, with meekness, right? We've got to be able to say in humility and meekness, oh yeah, that's me. I'm all covered with soot. I'm not reflecting the image of God. I'm thinking of myself first. I'm thinking about my own wisdom and my own pride. I'm turning to myself. I'm consulting with myself rather than consulting with God. That requires humility and meekness. We've got to be able to say, yeah, that, that's me. I, I need to be renewed. I need to be washed. And of course, part of this washing is to receive that forgiveness, to receive the forgiveness of the Lord as we forgive others. As we forgive others. So for us to receive forgiveness, we have to participate in it by forgiving. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And as we practice this forgiveness, as we practice this love, as we practice this compassion, we do it with this essential medicine that we read in verses 15, 16, and 17 of Colossians chapter 3, the very end of our reading today, with these three essential medicines of thankfulness and singing and of the Word of God. What he's describing is Christian worship. This is what we do in Christian worship. The great thanksgiving is Holy Communion. You, you'll, you'll notice when we start the Eucharistic prayer today that we start with, let us give thanks to the Lord, right? We give thanks to the Lord with all our hearts, minds, right? We, we start out by giving thanks to the Lord for all things. And then we get specific. We thank him for, for Christ, for his um, you know, resurrection, for his glorious ascension, for his giving of his body and blood, right? Uh, we give uh, thanks in particular for all the things that the Lord has done for us, for his love and compassion. And he says thankful three times in these three verses. Do you think that's important? When he says it three times like that? And be thankful with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So three times he says to be thankful. And not only do we do that in Holy Communion, but we do that in our daily prayer, right? Our daily prayer should be rooted in this thankfulness, this thanksgiving for every breath, for every um, piece of bread, for every person in our life, for everything, for every moment. We practice this thanksgiving to God. And then for our hearts and our minds to be rightly oriented, we have to receive revelation, right? Uh, we, we have to receive the revelation of God. And so we get that through the reading of Scripture, which informs our prayer. 
right? We know we're able to judge what we're hearing from the Lord and whether it's the Lord's voice by reading the Holy Scripture. If we're wondering, I've been hearing this from the Lord, but I'm not sure if it's of Him, we mark that against Holy Scripture, right? We say, this is what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord is doing. This is what the Lord is, says He's going to do. And so we read Holy Scripture so that we have that understanding and we're able to not just read it for ourselves, right? But we read it to teach and admonish one another. So we're reading Holy Scripture so that when each other are praying, we're able to say, this is what the Lord says in Scripture, right? This is what He's done for Paul. This is what He's done for Solomon. This is what we read in the Psalms, right? We have this, we have this uh, measure. We have this, this indwelling of the Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says we're supposed to sing psalms. He doesn't say some of you. He says all of you sing psalms. There's only one person in the audience today. There's only one audience member in this liturgy. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're singing to him. For him. I'm not singing to you. I'm not singing for you. I'm singing to God. And the Lord made each voice here. He must like it. The Lord made your voice, and he made your voice to sing his praises. And the wonderful thing that we get when we sing these spiritual psalms is a softening of the heart. A heart that had been hard where the word was not able to dwell, becomes broken up, it becomes soft earth, where the seed, the word of God, is able to richly dwell and grow and take root. Singing spiritual hymns and psalms softens our hearts. It breaks up that rocky soil so that the word is able to truly dwell deep within us. This is not a suggestion. This is a command of Scripture. Be thankful. Read scripture, sing songs. And in this praise is the antidote to the illness and disease of covetousness. It is the life-giving bread and water and spirit that rejuvenates and restores our hearts and minds so that we may be one with God in worship and with glory in Him this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.